The Chosen biblical drama series is headed back to theaters to conclude season three. Somehow this season, unlike the others, uh, we've seen a lot more criticism of this show. Are these creators trying to replace the true Christ with the TV Jesus? Aren't they adding to scripture and supplanting the local church? Or is this Mormon propaganda? We will return to this fantastical adjacent series to explore the purpose of biblical fiction and debunk some of the misunderstandings and plain lies about these kinds of stories. We're joined by two special guest stars in this episode of Fantastical Truth. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, co-author of The Pop Culture Parent, and I just dropped in here from a suspicious balloon. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I heard a rumor that the script for The Chosen was delivered on golden tablets from an angel. We'll find out if that's true today. This is episode 148, Why Do Some Christians Revile The Chosen? And we're joined by special guests Josiah DeGraff and Jenneth Dick. Yes, we have two special guest stars. Both happen to be initialed JD. They're talking about Dallas Jenkins, DJ, who is making a fictional version of the gospel narratives about JC, Jesus Christ, who is the star of the show. And all four of us do not revile this show. Uh, We have come to uh, support this biblical fiction drama and uh, kind of uh, pull our eyebrows up at some of the criticisms that we've seen. So we thought, well, uh, kind of inspired by our last episode by Robert Trescalard, the author of the Merlin Spiral series, we thought we'd have us a round table. And we have the technology, so we drew everybody into the virtual studio space. And we'll get started with that discussion in just a moment by introducing our guest stars, uh, both of whom are Lorehaven staff creators as well. First, let's stop by our first sponsor for this episode, returning champion Sky Turtle Press. They're doing this ongoing fundraiser on Kickstarter for the Fairy Queen. Just checked the figures a moment ago. They are over $171,000 toward the project goal, well above their stated goal out of the gate. Uh, C.S. Lewis said about the original Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer, the Fairy Queen never loses a reader it has once gained. Once you have become an inhabitant of its world, being tired of it is like being tired of London or of life. Welcome to Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. The new text, faithful, line-by-line prose rendering of Spencer's epic poem introduces new readers to Spencer's enthralling world of monsters, enchanted forests, witches, and brave but fumbling knights. To help readers overcome this struggle, classical educator Rebecca K. Reynolds worked with Elizabethan scholars to produce an annotated rendering which moves from heavy assistance in book one toward more of Spencer's language in book six. This week's episode is sponsored by Sky Turtle Press. They are the publishers of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which launched on Kickstarter last month and is planned for a September 2023 release. You can go support that project on Kickstarter or go to fairyqueen.com. Both of those links are in our show notes for episode 148 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, we've got a few uh, kings and queens in the studio now, uh, Jenneth Dick, as well as Josiah DeGraff, uh, both of whom independently pitched some Chosen-related articles at Lorehaven, which we've run within the past couple of weeks. Uh, who goes first alphabetically? Uh, Josiah, uh, you've been writing for Lorehaven for quite some time. Uh, why don't you just introduce yourself uh, and your work and your uh, your creativity? 
Yeah. So uh, great to be on the podcast today. I was honored to get the invite and looking forward to talking more about The Chosen and you know how we can watch it as Christians faithfully today. Uh, so I think I've been work, uh, writing for Lorehaven for, I want to say it's been close to two years now. Does that sound accurate, Stephen? I think so. We can go to the link and show. Uh, your last article was on uh, January 19th called How Christians Can Discern Jesus adaptations in the chosen and other stories. Right. Yeah. So I enjoyed uh, writing that article a lot. You know, in general, uh, I am a uh, writing teacher and a story analyst. Uh, my day job is uh, training young writers uh, over at the Young Writer Program. And then in my free time, I like to analyze stories, whether that's informally or on Twitter or more formally uh, over here at Lorehaven. Uh, because I think that stories just give us a great opportunity to think about life and how do we deal with the different dilemmas uh, that we face as Christians. And I love just thinking about stories and the different things that we can uh, learn about them. So those are some of the things I do and I enjoy writing about, and I'm uh, looking forward to diving into this discussion today. Jenneth, your article just arrived at Lorehaven. Uh, debut article, uh, The Chosen Succeeds Where Woke Stories Fail is the title. But you've been uh, with us for a bit, putting together some of those uh, fantastic uh, Instagram images for our social sharing. And you're also a professional designer. What else uh, do you do, Jenna? Thanks for having me, first off. And um, yes, I do a lot of book cover designs for independent Christian authors. Um, that's something I've been doing right out of college and I've been really enjoying it. Um, but yes, I also like writing. I'm obsessed with The Chosen um, and I'm obsessed with analyzing stories, especially movies, and looking for uh, traditional themes, biblical themes, conservative themes, even in shows or movies that might not actually be Christian. In this case, The Chosen is, but it's really interesting to see how they manage to kind of succeed in everything that Hollywood is trying. A lot of times you see Hollywood trying to um, kind of press this importance to lift up either um, people of color or people who are on the spectrum or whatever, but a lot of times it falls flat and feels um, kind of unrealistic or inauthentic. Um, but I think The Chosen does a really good job at blending realistic people and real, tr uh, real struggles and real difficulties into a really cohesive narrative that actually affects everybody when they're watching it in a re really meaningful yeah. way. So. That's something I've been a little obsessed looking at. <laughs> well, I love that you call yourself obsessed with The Chosen like you're a super fan. I realized for the first time I was a super fan when I saw a display of The Chosen at the National Religious Broadcasters Conference. And my favorite thing to see there was Matthew Spoon from season two, which he kind of used to defend himself against the, I think the, the demoniac. And I, when I saw that wood spoon, I was so excited. And then I'm like, I'm geeking out over a wooden spoon. Like what? Spoon. Like what has happened to me? <laughs> it's an yeah, elegant weapon. Some... <laughs> yeah, for a more civilized, a more civilized age. age. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's uh, the uh, the word obsess. I think, Jenneth, that you use could uh, could bother some people. And I, I would love it if uh, Lorehaven Studio could be graced with the presence of some folks who are not so obsessed with the chosen and maybe feel a little annoyed uh, by the fan base. I, I would just like to remind these folks, hey, everybody's uh, everybody's brothers and sisters in Christ here. Uh, everybody loves the same true Jesus. Uh, if you are on your game, you see the TV Jesus for who he is. 
Even Jonathan Raumi, who plays uh, the Chosen's version of the Jesus, is well aware of the difference. Uh, he just did a speech for the March for Life in Washington, D.C., which I watched. Um, brother looked really cold up there. Uh, and he just said, guys, let's just get this out of the way. And he points to himself. He says, TV Jesus. And then he points to the sky and he says, real Jesus. <laughs> so if he knows the difference, so can we. And even if we're obsessed with the show, uh, that doesn't mean that we are worshiping an actor instead of the true Jesus. And so people just need to get over that word obsession. Speaking of set obsession, let's go for our concessions. Uh, this is the part of the show where we break out some sweet, tasty, hot treats and kind of try to set the expectations going into what will be a really interesting roundtable this time. This conversation could be sensitive. And of course, we're trying the roundtable, so you're going to get some different opinions here. I don't know, maybe some debate, but I think we're all pretty like-minded here. It's mostly debating some of the stuff we've heard from the outside. Fandoms can bring a lot of sensitivity, especially if you're a DC fan these days. But if you are a fan of the true Jesus Christ, you're going to face even more sensitivities. Uh, because so many people have different views of Jesus and different things that they've uh, heard or imagined about him growing up or been taught from the scripture growing up. It's all mixed up together. Uh, and you get this other uh, presentation then from the chosen that may align with some people's views of Jesus and it may really challenge other people's views. Uh, like the chosen itself, then uh, you may find yourself disagreeing with parts of this episode, uh, but hopefully you'll, uh, you'll at least enjoy the personalities that you hear. Uh, for my part, just speaking for me, Stephen, when I'm talking about the reasons why Christians do creative things, whether it's fantastical novels or a biblical drama series like The Chosen, I really uh, err on the side. Uh, I don't think it's an error, uh, but I lean toward the side of explaining that these things are done as by, motivated as worship of Jesus. Yes, there are other reasons Christians make stories. You want to promote morality or preach the gospel, or reach an unsaved friend, maybe. Uh, that's all Great Commission type stuff. And that's a commandment from the true Jesus on the way up to heaven to go out and make disciples. I don't mean to minimize that, but I do challenge the assumption that a lot of Christians have, whether about the chosen or other stories, that if they're not preaching right, uh, if they're not acting like a preacher at the pulpit, then what is the point of this show? Or at worst, maybe it's some uh, act of the enemy in order to tempt us away from the true Jesus. Uh, I don't see it that way. I think that preachers ought to preach and Christian artists ought to art. And I think Christians who make art ought to defend their art by saying, not by not saying, oh, yes, I'm, I'm preaching. I'm preaching better than you, or this is how we reach people. Like That's a secondary uh, aim of the art. But I think we ought to stop appealing so much to, hey, souls are getting saved. We're doing ministry through this art. I think the best thing we can say about it is I'm responding in worship with this art to the gospel that I've heard in my local church. I believe in my local church. I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And that is actually what Dallas Shinkin says. He, as he says in this uh, video, we'll be referencing, I believe in the sufficiency of scripture, you know, test everything you hear, take it to your local uh, church, uh, talk to your pastor about it. But the first reason to defend a good Christian creative work is to say, this is an act of worship. And that also means that's an act of worship in public and things get mixed up in public. And there are not always just local church rules or theology correction rules. And yet, in order to worship the true Jesus, you still need to worship in spirit and in truth, which means you need to worship biblically. Uh, I wish personally we would just see uh, an end to this impulse in evangelical Christians to defend our creative stuff by saying, yes, this will get souls saved. And look at the lives that are being changed. Maybe I don't want to end that, but maybe we ought not lead with that. 
maybe we should just say, hey, this is an act of biblical worship for the true Jesus uh, in the art. And that's all we really should uh, need to say about it. If you aim for worshiping Jesus, you may get practical ministry to people thrown in. But I think if you're just trying to do the practical ministry stuff, uh, ignoring the reasons why we worship Jesus out of gratitude for what he's done for us, we're not even going to get the practical ministry. Uh, finally, uh, we're building here on a lot of uh, articles, uh, not only Jen's uh, article and Josiah's article, uh, but I also did a series called Discerning Biblical Fiction. Uh, all of it kind of goes together. And of course, uh, why are we talking about The Chosen, which uh, doesn't have any dragons or spaceships in it? Uh, I see biblical fiction as a cousin genre to fantastical fiction. So that's, that's why we're talking about it here. Um, Zach, you got any other concessions to throw in or any of you all? Yeah. I mean, as I already said at the beginning, I'm a fan, so I'm just going to lay my cards on the table and say, look, I'm, I'm going to praise the show. I'm going to defend it from a lot of unfair criticism. So I'm going to take a side and, you know, and that's generally how we are on this podcast. We talk about stories that we like and we celebrate the stories that we, that we love. And even the ones that kind of make us groan, we still try to find things that we like about them. So that's just the focus of this podcast. This is not a discern all the errors in the chosen or make a tally sheet of like what's right and wrong about it. We're mostly going to be taking a positive spin on it. Um, now I, I would say though, that why I'm a fan of this, it, it's because I'm a fan of another related property that I, I also kind of groaned at the end and we're not going to get into this a whole lot, but it's left behind. So I really loved the left behind books when I read those, uh, in my, my early twenties when I was a pretty new believer. And you know, that was published by the father of Dallas Jenkins, Jerry Jenkins. And, but when it got to the end of that, you know, the books had taken a lot of creative liberty while staying very true to scripture. But the one part that I got to say it disappointed me was when Jesus came back and he just kind of recycled other verses that in the red letters of the gospels, there wasn't really any new words given to Jesus when he came back. And I just, I kind of felt disappointed by that because I'm like, well, aren't you already taking creative license with what you think is going to happen? Like, why not imagine what Jesus might say? Uh, Cause it, when it says a sword comes out of his mouth, you know, it's, it's his words. Um, but you know, so the, the chosen takes a very different approach. It, it mostly uses made up dialogue for Jesus. Now this is obviously very risky and we'll, we'll get into that, but this is a very different approach from the Jesus film that's produced by campus crusade for Christ. Um, from a few decades ago, or the more recent visual Bible adaptations of Matthew or John. And so it's just, it's not a literal translation or, or adaptation of the text. It's very much imagining what could have happened, what Jesus could have said while trying to stay true. I just look at it like you're imagining out loud through actors what you think might have happened in between what we know was said. The verse that I always go to is the end of John, John 21, 25, where he said, Jesus did many other things as well. Uh, and I suppose if every one of them had been written down, the world could not contain all the books that would be written. And that's what I think the chosen is. It's what, what do we think is written in, <laughs> what would have been written in all these other books if we could have written everything down? Uh, if someone had followed Jesus around with a video camera and, and recorded every single interaction. Um, so I, I don't think this adds to scripture at all. I think it's just, imagining what might have happened i agree of course um real quick before we go into chapter one here jenneth uh, you do a lot of uh, engagement in comment sections and some of the uh, the chosen fan groups and I, i've seen your comments i'm in some of those fan groups as well 
What are some of these recent criticisms we've seen of the show uh, that just frankly get under our skin and make us wonder about the ability of our beloved Christian brothers and sisters to understand what a show is for uh, and to repeat truths about it instead of spreading these slanders? Well, I, I see a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about a lot of things, like even in the official chosen fan what? page. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> even with like the official chosen Facebook page, you see them bickering all the time about all sorts of things because you've got Baptists, you have Catholics, you have Mormons, you may even have um, some who don't believe in the Bible at all. And But a lot of times they're really, really passionate about what they believe the Bible says and they believe what their religion says. And I think in some ways Christians can get extra hostile in this situation because we tie it all into morality. Like we believe the Bible says, you know, this is sin and this isn't. And so if another Christian doesn't agree with us, we think they're living in sin and we feel like we're obligated to speak the truth in love and forget the love part often. (laughs) So. There's a lot of back and forth and different things. Um, One thing, though, I have seen frequently outside of any fan page is um, a lot of uh, Jesus meme pages, you know, lots of fun Christian memes that I've been following for years suddenly decided to go to war against the chosen about being a violation of this uh, second commandment. And I'm just like, Mm. where did this come from? Why the coordinated attack? So I've I have quite a few thoughts on how the chosen relates to the second commandment and actually kind of delved into the Bible a little bit and looked up the actual verse and looked up the translation of it and what it actually says and what is it meaning. So I have a lot of thoughts on that. Oh, we could have a whole show on that one. But Jenneth, like you make images for a living. Uh, so you're on perilous ground here. Apparently you can make <laughs> images of everything except uh, Jesus himself. Josiah, you are primarily teaching uh, the craft of wordsmithing. So you're safe. Uh, words are okay for Christians, but not images, right? Or at least images are a bit suspect. Uh, what are some of the criticisms you've seen of uh, The Chosen, that particularly that led to your article? Yeah. So. In many ways, my article stemmed from a conversation that I saw happen on Facebook. I think this might have even been a post that you originally wrote, Stephen, uh, where some people were complaining about the one scene in the second episode of season three, uh, where Jesus is talking with uh, little James about why he's not going to heal him. And there were some questions about the fact that there is a scene being added to the Bible. Now, there are some fair discussions to be had with that particular scene of, you know, is what Jesus says accurate? Is that something that Jesus might have done or is in the realm of possibility for him to do? You know, I end up taking the side that I think it is, you know, permissible imagining of what Jesus could have done. You know, but I'll grant that there are some fair discussions to be had about that. But one of the things that, you know, I noticed in some of the discussions that, you know, I wanted to write about, you know, is this idea that we can't imagine other things in what are recorded um, in the text of Scripture. Um, maybe some of this stems from a similar view that you know, led uh, Jenkins to, you know, Jerry Jenkins uh, in Left Behind to just use the words of Christ. You know, I think it's an understandable view. It's a concern that you know, I don't put, want to put words into Jesus's mouth. Um, I don't want to be misrepresenting Christ. And I think there is a good, healthy fear there. You know, where I think that fear comes in error is when 
we use that fear and we apply it to fiction, but we don't apply it to nonfiction at the same level. Mm. Because certainly there are plenty of us that we're willing to extrapolate from Christ's statements and say, well, this would be what Jesus taught, you know, even if Jesus never said that specifically, either because it's a clear implication or because we realize that the teachings of Paul and the teachings of Jesus are the same teachings. Paul's not teaching something different uh, from what Jesus is. Um, and so I wanted to write an article that was exploring that a bit more and think about, well, what standards should we be using when evaluating appearances of Christ in fiction? Because there should absolutely be standards. But I think we want to make sure that the standards we're applying are the same across the nonfiction we read and the fiction we consume, um, and we're not privileging one uh, genre over the other. Amen to all that. It's all about the consistency, and it's all about asking the very question, what is biblical fiction for? Some of the criticisms from folks who want to know better uh, come from Christian scholars, preachers, teachers, uh, folks who are very much about the Bible as the revealed Word of God, which all four of us here are certainly uh, in agreement uh, on that position. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But I do see uh, a lot of uh, preachery types and uh, support preachers. I don't want to keep on making concessions here, but, you know, Lord love them. They're doing very difficult work uh, uh, opening the Bibles uh, every Sunday and beyond. Uh, but a lot of them, I think, get, uh, Zach, what's it called? The Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, where you think that your specialized knowledge about one area uh, grants you more knowledge in another area. Or has that epistemological no, trespass? You got, you got it. I mean, they're kind okay. of the same thing. That's kind yeah. of the same thing. Yeah. That, that, so, that, yeah. Like feeling overconfident in something you don't I really might know be illustrating about. the very principle myself, even as I'm trying to articulate <laughs> it. But I think that what we, how we see that happening is uh, people who are very learned uh, in the scriptures uh, and exegeting the word and getting into the Greek and Hebrew and running a church and doing all these things that uh, scripture itself has commanded, especially trained elders to do, teaching elders in the church. Uh, they then see something like the Chosen come along, which seems on the surface to be trespassing on their territory, and they go, wait, wait, what's this? What's this? Like, movies are supposed to be movies. Preaching is supposed to be preaching. What's this TV show uh, that's kind of uh, doing my job? Well, I step back and go, it's, it's not doing your job. As I mentioned in my concessions, it is, it is a worshipful, creative response to the preaching of the Word, which ought to be what happens. Uh, it's not supposed to be like preaching. It's supposed to be more like singing, but not singing in the church, like more like singing in your car with the windows rolled down and maybe some pagans like the song. And then people accuse you of playing that song only to make the pagans happy. Some of these preachers then get really, really bothered. Uh, and they seem really vulnerable to these rumors about the chosen, uh, which we've already uh, mentioned, you know, well, they're adding to scripture. Uh, they're trying to present an authentic Jesus in place of the real Jesus who lives and reigns to this day. Uh, or even uh, the fact that a, a, a Mormon uh, brought you the chosen by paying for the lights at Angel Studios, that means that they're controlling the script. Uh, that could be a whole episode all on its own, but some of this is just rumor. And what I found interesting is that the chosen, as you mentioned to us uh, before we started, Jenneth, keeps republishing this video that showrunner and creator Dallas Jenkins made in, you said, December 2019. Uh, the That's first right. year of the show, and they just keep reposting it. And they're always addressing every single time in <laughs> advance the criticisms that we're hearing afresh. Now, you know, Dallas Jenkins reading the Book of Mormon, getting the burning in the bosom, and then writing Jesus saying, I am the law of Moses. Uh, that's a new one. That is a little bit new, but it's just a spin on the same. Well, if it's successful, it must be because, you know, they've been practicing the dark arts and uh, getting, in, uh, getting in league with, uh, with the Mormons there in Salt Lake City. 
Um, I, I don't want people, Christians, you know, getting in league uh, with anybody who's not a Christian, but that's just not the case with this show. And so we keep hearing some of the same criticisms. And, and this show has been four years old now, at least. Uh, I first heard about it in April of 2019. I actually wrote a blog uh, when I heard a Dallas Jenkins interview with uh, Kevin McCreary, who's been a guest on Fantastical Truth. They had only four episodes by then. It was a super homemade, crowdfunded effort. Uh, now, uh, about four years after that, it's this giant, giant phenomenon. It's incredible. Um, who, who here saw the two episodes in theaters, by the way? I've, I've not yet seen them. It's the season yeah, I, three ender. Oh, not the finale. Just the, oh, you saw the, the first two. The okay. Opener. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I still I haven't need seen to catch up. Yeah, that's all I've uh, seen so far. We we try to watch the whole, uh, we try to watch the show together with our big girls, our teenagers, and so we just haven't been able to sync up our schedules for uh, episode three and beyond for season three. So we'll so have we, to watch our spoilers for Zach's sake, yeah. uh, if nothing else. Don't don't spoil in, the Bible for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh. and Jenneth. Okay, Jenneth, which well, episode I, do you want? I'm sorry, I am actually caught up, but I have not seen the theater one, and I'm very much trying to avoid. Uh, spoilers for this finale because I do <laughs> actually I'm, get to see them in theaters this time and I'm very excited. That is spectacular. <laughs> I, I have my theories about what they said they wouldn't be able to show and probably were still able to show, especially if they're going to one uh, gospel narrative uh, directly after the feeding of the 5,000. But I'll hold yes. those. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll see if I'm proven right uh, tonight, actually, on the day that we're recording this. So, okay, so we're both up. You and I are up to episode six of season three. Josiah? I'm still at uh, episode two of season three. Have okay. I've not had the chance I need to, to go through the rest. Okay, so half of the roundtable are at the same place, and the other half is at the other same place four episodes earlier. So I think we can avoid spoilers. Uh, Jesus says things that frustrate the religious leaders. There's a lot of healings, uh, and there's a lot of drama with the disciples. And, and Jairus. Jairus shows up. He's awesome. Anyway. Okay, and spoilers. Hey, folks, that was just the prologue. Let's go to chapter one. And we're basing some of this on stuff that Dallas Jenkins says. I took some notes just to help us out uh, from that video we talked about. And I've titled this section, Can Non-Christians Help Us Make Great Stories? That's a big issue of some of the chosen critics. They are really bothered. And I want to, uh, I want to be respectful of this criticism. I said, wait a minute, you've got non-Christians who are helping to make the chosen. Uh, you know, a non-Christian may have sewed uh, the costume that Jonathan Ralmy wears for Jesus. A non-Christian may have built the gym uh, where the guy who plays Peter uh, works out uh, and gets so swole. A non-Christian <laughs> may have put the wheels on the wagon uh, or may be posting guard at the set. Uh, what is it near, uh, actually, ironically, Dallas, Texas now. Is, they're filming a lot there. And of course, uh, the organization called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had a set for a while in uh, Utah where they were filming. So arguably, you've got at least some non-Christians helping Christians make great stories. Does this corrupt the show itself? Uh, Dallas Jenkins understands those criticisms, it seems. Uh, he has headed them off in this video. Uh, I'll, I'll try to imitate him and probably fail here. He says, what is the chosen's approach to scripture and faith, and can you trust it? Uh, he says, The Chosen is a narrative show. It is not intended to be a documentary church or official ministry. He says, and this is his goal, it's absolutely not a replacement for scripture. It's a show. But he says, we still need to get this show right because it's about Jesus. We want to be historically accurate because we believe the Gospels are historical documents. People, however, he says, ask about non-believers involved with the cast and crew. Uh, evangelicals are upset uh, at any Catholics who are involved in making the show. 
Uh, others are upset about uh, Mormons or LDS or whatever you want to call them working on it or vice versa. Like some Mormon people are upset that evangelical Christians are working on it because historically folks at uh, the LDS organization has said that biblical Christians are not actual Christians. And now they seem to want to have a different take on that. So it gets confusing. People get into fights uh, in or out of comment sections. But Dallas Jenkins is a evangelical Christian with a orthodox biblical faith statement. He says, we take the show very seriously. Uh, he speaks about God pressing on his heart, the need to be responsible with these stories. And he reiterated then, as he reiterates now, that he's captain of the content ship. And because he's a biblical Christian, he says that will make the show uh, biblically based. Uh, it's not going to be compromised by some uh, tablets of gold from an angel sometime back in the 19th century. Uh, Dallas Jenkins says, quote, the Bible is the word of God and it needs no improvement, end quote. He says the consultants for the show are still the same. It's not a replacement for scripture, but they do talk with people who are also Christians, but may have a different faith tradition. Not Mormons, not LDS organization folks, but biblical Christians, even if they're from different denominations. Uh, he reiterates the creative backstories for the show do not change the Bible itself. He says, quote, this show is about a Jewish man and his Jewish followers, so I'm going to stick to their stories and try not to improve my faith tradition over it, end quote. Uh, he says, now this is kind of funny because if that's an older video back then, he said more than 200 people are involved in this show. That actually makes sense now, Janet, that it's an, if it's an older video, because there's got to be a lot more working on it now. I uh, think this is the important thing to note, and I'll try to hush here in a moment and let you all uh, speak to this. But when you have a Christian creative effort that is not a local church, the rules are different. Not everyone, as he says, can be an evangelical or even be a Christian believer. He says, quote, as long as the content itself is faithful, we are less demanding with those who deliver it, end quote. And I guess I would just want to say for any stray chosen critic who happens by, um, if you go to a biblical local church and you're sick, like actual sick, and you need to stay home, but your church offers a live stream because this is part of a local church's responsibility, not just to the saints who are members of the church inside, but to the wider world outside. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, hey, sometimes non-believers are going to stop by and you're going to want to make sure to not get too wild and crazy in there so that they can know the Holy Spirit is active and that he is a God of order. So you may live stream your pastor's uh, sermon. Um, what if a non-believer is hosting the YouTube page on which the sermon is live streamed? Does this affect the content? The answer is no. Uh, unless you suspect some conspiracy, no. A distribution does not automatically affect or infect the content. And I think some of these criticisms about uh, non-believers poisoning the show just by working on it, I don't know. To me, it just illustrates uh, at worst a superstition uh, and at best an unfamiliarity with how Christians make art and with how Christians make stories. I'm curious who wants to go first, like who's seen this criticism and what would you say to somebody who has has this concern? Jenna? I honestly, in some ways, sympathize with people who are very suspicious of Bible fiction because I, I grew up in a fairly traditional um, Christian environment and we we didn't have a problem with things like that. But I think the especially more traditional church and traditional Christianity um, has seen a lot of times where they've been burned. They've got excited about, you know, something, a big project or something, and it, it ends up not turning out biblical or there's a problem. Um, 
I think of like the Noah movie. <laughs> you know, oh, originally yes. <laughs> the the trailers looked good. It looked impressive. And you think, well, maybe they'll get it right. But then the more you learned about it, the more you realize that the whole thing, like you said, was is kind of conspiratorial. They were trying to trick evangelicals to get into this movie theater and watch it. And the controversy alone generated so much money for them. Also, you mentioned earlier using the phrase authentic Jesus. I was talking to my dad a few days ago, and he said that term can have a lot of issues with it sometimes for more um, more traditional churches, because back in the day, there was terms going around from um, a more progressive and slightly like non-biblical group saying that they they were discovering the the real Jesus or the, I forget the term. It His, wasn't historical authentic, but it was Jesus. very similar. Historical Jesus, yeah, yeah. yes. Oh, this, this is the, the Jesus the seminar. Mainline liberals would say, yes. yeah, we, we got a bunch of people together, Marcus Borg in a room with his agents, uh, the Borg Collective, I presume, and then they were picking and choosing who's the historical Jesus and which ones are the myths. But then you had the emergent movement and not too long ago, kind of this other iteration of, of kind of more left-leaning, uh, worldly uh, Christianity, I would say, uh, and they were discovering the authentic Jesus, you know, de decluttering the stuff that we learned from the church back home and uh, and really getting back to basics. Yeah. And it's it's something if you watch The Chosen and you hear the term authentic Jesus, you understand what they're saying. They're, they're trying to cut away kind of the preconception of what we had of, you know, kind of this westernized, very stoic, serious Jesus that was very impersonal, which is not really the biblical Jesus. If you look at the Bible, um, Jesus had humor. He had even sarcasm in some areas um, when he dealt with the Pharisees. It, it reads very sarcastic if you read it kind of separate from what you, you have in your mind from the other Jesuses and other shows. So I can understand um, the hesitancy because, I, I mean, I even remember the Roma Downey uh, History Channel Bible show was supposed oh, to be yes. really good. Never watched it, though. Never watched it. It was good for its time. Like it, it pales in comparison to The Chosen, but I remember being very excited about it as a high schooler because it was the closest thing so far to creators that actually had a respectful view of God. Um, they didn't align with me on many theological points, but the, at the end of the day, the soul of the show was to honor and respect God. But the problem was that they took a lot of um, influence from people who who didn't see the Bible as the sole authority, and it, it ended up warping the story in some ways really significantly, not just with Jesus, but with other characters in the Bible, um, doing things that you know biblically they would have never done. Um, I think Daniel, they, they did the story on Daniel, and they had him there when everybody was bowing down to the golden statue for Nebuchadnezzar, and he was kind of in the little box next to the king. So for some reason, they didn't have to bow, but he was kind of hoping that his friends would bow to avoid being killed. And we're like, that's not the Daniel oh, of the Bible. No, you know? that's not him. Yeah. No. No. So that's I understand <laughs> the suspicion because, you know, yeah. you've got these big projects that have a lot of promise. And then, you know, you watch and realize that there's some major flaws um, that could, could be a stumbling block for Christians who watch it and, you know, get that idea in their head. So I think they also forget that ecclesiastical separation is different than separation from anything that is remotely different from you. You know, oh, that's huge. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want in your church if, say, if you disagreed with Dallas Jenkins on something 
significant as far as theology goes. You might not want to invite him to preach a revival in your church service because you don't agree with his church and you wouldn't invite like people from his church to because that's a ecclesiastical separation. But that doesn't say we then can't have any association with anybody who disagrees with us um, outside of like the actual church meeting. So I, I don't have a problem with him using the LDS is set in Utah to produce a Bible show that's accurate to the Bible because they're not a church. They're not a church that that clause in the Bible doesn't apply to them at all. So, um, but I think it's easy to confuse when you've already been burned so many times by these big promises that Christian movies are making. And so I understand the suspicion for sure. I think that's really well spoken, uh, especially the distinction between uh, the the boundaries that you have around a local church, like who's in, who's out, who gets to go on the platform, who's okay, you know, who are we okay with joining? Uh, those boundaries are going to be different from our expectations of uh, the workplace, or even if you're going out doing a parachurch ministry or a Christian concert. I think there's lots of Christians who have studied the Bible very much about the rules for local church, but they uh, don't know the rules for other spaces in the world because they're very much focused on the local church. It's a busy job. There's only so much time in the day. So you just don't think about bigger questions like, can a Christian vote for a pagan who's running for president? Or does he have to fake to be a Christian in order to get your vote? Uh, can a Christian work with a non-Christian on a Christian-made TV show? You know How much a non-Christian activity is allowed before it starts becoming a non-Christian show? Like All these are questions that Christians should debate, but we shouldn't be separating from each other um, I'm glad you said that, too, about the uh, the Mormon uh, organization, the LDS. Uh, notice we're not calling it church here, by the way. It's not just another Christian denomination. That may be another podcast topic. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, you know, there may not be some Christians there, but I think that that would be the, uh, the exception just based on what that organization historically has taught. But can you pal around with them? Can you go out and have some coffee? Uh, can, can you get, uh, you know, get some papers for your script from a Mormon printer? and then write Christian-made stuff on them? Absolutely. Uh, can you watch each other's kids? Like, probably. I mean, we've got, uh, we've got friends. I'm sure all of us knows friends who are, you know, maybe non-Christians who think they are, but it calls for discernment. But yeah, different rules from the local church. Josiah, a question for you. Some of these uh, concerns about the Chosen, Jenneth said it comes from, or can come from, Christians who are legitimately concerned about being burned by the next big Christian thing. How much of that do you think is going on with some of the response to The Chosen? Oh, I think that's absolutely a good part of what's going on. I mean, the fact is that, as Jenneth said, we can all point to things that should have been good, but then the wrong person got involved, and we've been burned before when they came in and the studio said, we are going to rewrite this in order to fit our ideological leanings. So I think it's a very legitimate concern. My worry is that when that becomes the only standard that something is judged by, because the fact is, there's a lot more that goes behind the quality or the orthodoxy of a show than just the orthodoxy of whoever is you know, completely in top um, of an organization. There are well-meaning Christians who have produced some terrible and even unorthodox products and shows in the past. And I would also say that there are non-Christians who, despite themselves, are being used by God to be able to create good things through their money or their bankrolling or just through their support of some kind of show or product. 
And one of the reasons why I'm so confident in the fact that that's the case is because that's the example that we see in Scripture. When you look at the building of the temple and how the temple was built, what you'll notice is that it wasn't just Israelites who were working on it. That's right. And, you know, if anything should be built or designed just by Israelites, you'd think it would be the temple, the, the seat of God himself, where the Israelites were going to worship. You know, but what do we see? Well, when Solomon builds a temple, you know, he goes to King Hiram of Tyre. Now, we don't know much about Hiram. Maybe Hiram was a closet believer, but that would be reading into the text. Probably the most straightforward assumption you can make is that you know, he was a Canaanite. He was a pagan. But Solomon still enlisted him because he was a friendly pagan and he had excellent wood that Solomon was able to use to the temple. And that wasn't an issue. You know, then looking again at the building of the second temple, what do we see? Well, we see that God comes to Cyrus, you know, the Persian emperor, and puts it on his heart that he should commission and fund this temple back in uh, the, the old land of, of Judah that they'd conquered. Now, it is uh, challenging to know, you know, which exact, you know, Persian emperor was this. Uh, there are different names used in the scripture for the different emperors. It is possible that Cyrus had some faith, but I'm not sure that the Bible clearly indicates that he does. And it, it seems very possible that he was another pagan who God used in order to build his house. And so, you know, if in scripture God is, you know, willing to use pagan kings and emperors to both supply materials for the place of worship and to commission it itself. I think that puts us on forum footing to say we should be careful. We shouldn't have blinders on. We should keep our eyes open in case there are Mormon influences. But if there are no clear Mormon influences, which I'd argue is the case, we should be judging something by the product itself, uh, not just by the different people who might be involved in it. Exactly. And that's what Dallas Jenkins keeps saying is, please actually look at the content, you know, judge that, not just how it got here. Now, we're not going to do anything unethically said. Uh, we're not going to sin in the making of this show if we can help it. Uh, that's uh, something that every Christian ought to be thinking about, no matter our vocation. But their intention is very clear to have content that aligns with the scripture and that glorifies the true Jesus through this, uh, you know, uh, historical fiction reenactment of these events, filling in the gaps. And we'll talk about what biblical fiction is in just a moment. I would say that non-Christians help build the temple or non-believers help build the temple. Non-believers also help build church buildings now. Uh, an atheist may have signed off on the building permit. Uh, a Hindu may have brought in a cement mixer to pour the concrete for the foundation. Uh, Zach, you are a member of a local church where the rules are going to be different, or they should, for membership. I think we all are members of different local churches. But, Zach, you're also involved with a parachurch organization, which maybe is a little bit closer to what The Chosen is doing. Like, How does this work out in what you do as a local church member versus a, a member of a ministry that's using local church gospel as preached in the local church uh, to reach the lost. Yeah, well, I, as I mentioned before, there is the Jesus film that Campus Crusade produced a few decades ago, which is a pretty much literal adaptation of the Gospel of Luke. And that's our biggest ministry tool. It's been translated into 2,000 languages, and it's available in all these different apps and websites and formats. But it's a very faithful rendering of the Gospels. But in addition to that, uh, the Jesus Film Ministry has produced a lot of short films that are sort of 
conversation starters, segments that are inspired by the Bible. And there's even like an anime version. Uh, it's called My Last Day. It's about the thief on the cross. And it uses only the audio from the Jesus film, but it kind of visually imagines what was this guy's backstory? Like, who was he before he got to the cross? And, and then how was his life affected by Jesus forgiving him and saying, I, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. So again, it takes sort of that creative license to fill in the gaps. Uh, but again, it, it's still a very faithful, plausible rendering of what could have happened. And we use both of those tools, you know, depending on the setting. I want to go back to something earlier where you said Dallas Jenkins was quoted as saying, you know, we're not creating our own Bible. And that's absolutely true. They're not coming out with the chosen version of the Bible. <laughs> like you can't go to the store and buy with the little a, fishies a on the cover. Right. Yeah, the logo. Uh, yeah. Th- there's not a new Bible translation from Dallas Jenkins. General editor Dallas Jenkins. And I I want to compare and contrast this to another church or ministry that did do that. It's the Passion Translation, okay? I'm not a big fan of that. I don't want to get into a whole debate about that this or whatever. This is not the Passion of the Christ. This no, is not, not the Passion of the, the Passion not, Conference. Not the Passion Conference. Oh, not that. Uh, okay. No, okay. It, it's from a different ministry. We don't need to get go into all that. It, it takes a lot of liberties with the text that the, the more I've looked into it, uh, Mike Winger has a good series on it. Oh, this one. Yes. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm not a fan of the, the liberties they took. And in a similar way, there is a really popular book that I'm sorry, I'm not a fan of, but it's Jesus Calling. And, and it does sort of a similar thing. It, it takes a lot of liberties with what this woman is basically saying Jesus spoke to her. Uh, but then she, it's kind of like her turning around saying, this is what Jesus is speaking to you. And that's, that makes me a little uncomfortable because yeah. I, I've looked, again, I've looked, we have this book, we've gone through it. And I'm like, I don't know that all this really lines up with scripture. So there's definitely boundaries to what I think is a good and safe adaptation or imagination or supposal of Jesus' words. But yeah, just just going back to the chosen, you know, this is not a heretical Jesus that had a romance with Mary Magdalene, as we've seen in what the Da Vinci Code. Oh, yes. It's another thing that burned us a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, to the point about a non-Christians being involved in the show, imagine if the editor of the show that was not a Christian and wanted to insert that or insinuate that with innuendo, with just focusing on a certain glance between Jesus and Mary and sort of, you know, suggesting something through that. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm a video editor, so I, I know the power of editing and how that could be done. There, there's a, in fact, there's, there's a viral video of Elon Musk and uh, representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So he took these totally different unrelated videos <laughs> and made it look like they're kind of, you know, flirting with each other. It's really, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, it's, it's political, but it's, it's so well done, like from an editing standpoint, that you really believe that they're interacting and talking. And someone could have done that with the chosen, you know, obviously would not according to Dallas's wishes, but just sort of to sabotage it. And that's not being done. This also isn't bringing in weird doctrines like uh, I've mentioned before the Jesus 2000 TV show that came out on ABC uh, back in the year 2000. The, the Son of God was told that he had to repent of his sins before being baptized, which kind of of throws off the whole him dying for our sins part of the rest of the gospels. And yeah. And you know, and this is not the, the Gnostic Jesus 
who didn't really have a physical body. It was just some holographic force field where he glowing he toes floating over the earth because he's right. too holy to touch the dirt. Yeah, where he didn't really eat or or drink or anything. It was all an illusion. This is a fully human being who's also God. It's the hypostatic union. And there, there's definitely some differences of opinion uh, among Christians, as there always have been. And this is what Dallas Jenkins addressed in a different uh, video series um, on the uh, Relatable podcast with Ali Bestucky that, look, we've all been debating for 2,000 years, what does it mean to be fully human and fully God in the person of, of Christ? Um, does that mean that he always had perfect knowledge or, or did he have to learn things? Uh, does it mean he, he could always know everyone's secrets or did he have to talk to people and find out things like everyone else? Uh, does it mean that he had a sermon just instantly ready to go or did he have to practice a sermon? And that, that gets into uh, season three a little bit there. So he's obviously making creative decisions based on his interpretations and opinions, but I don't think any of those are out of bounds from Orthodox Christianity. Um, I just think it's, I, I do get the risk. You know, I, I get that this is dicey. And uh, last thing I want to bring up is in Luke 7. This is where a centurion comes to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. And there, there were some other Jewish people that said, oh, you know, please help this guy. They said, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So right there, we, we have oh. a, a pagan it's just what Roman. Josiah was talking about. Yes. Yeah, who built mm. the Jewish synagogue. And I, I'm assuming he's he's not a Jewish follower. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's not, you know, a Jesus follower. He's just a, a good, decent guy, similar to Cornelius that we see in Acts 10, that, that had this kind of favorable, uh, you know, viewpoint of the Jewish people, the Christian people. And I think that's the same situation we're in today is that we have these people that are kind of adjacent to Christianity, uh, either because of similar religious views or similar, you know, cultural conservative kind of views, but they're not totally on the same page with us. And that, that makes that, that can make us nervous, but I, I think it really speaks to how Jesus is always surprising us by how he provides for his work to be done. I think that's a really great point, Zach. And I think that a, whether you're a, a preacher a uh, teacher, uh, someone who's going around the internet seeing rumors about the chosen and getting alarmed because you think this is the next big Christianish thing that's going to hoodwink us all, just like the last time. Well, you got some personal history there, but I think you may also have a lack of theological foundation for that type of person you mentioned, Zach, uh, the person whom I think the Bible would call uh, been blessed by common grace but is not saved. Uh, yes, we believe that all are sinners. Uh, the Bible says very clear in Ephesians that everyone apart from Christ is dead in transgressions and sins. That's how we've all started out. Not just mostly dead, uh, not just a little sick, but all dead, as Miracle Max would say. And it takes a supernatural act to regenerate that person and lead them to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And yet, even spiritually dead people uh, who are sinners, uh, even one could say those who hate God, uh, can align with some goodness that God has put in his world. Uh, Jesus himself taught uh, that God sends the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, and that even evil people know how to give good gifts to their children. That's just part of creation order, uh, that God is active in the world. There are good things that he's put in the world. Uh, my co-author calls these the fingerprints of God. You can see them if you know where to look, and you still see the image of God reflected, however broken, 
in human beings. So whether it's that centurion uh, who had at least some moral decency to help the Jews build a synagogue, or whether it's someone who's a member of the LDS organization who is not a Christian, but who at least upholds kind of Christian moral values uh, and isn't trying to corrupt your children in a public school somewhere. You can thank God for that person, but know that they still need Jesus. And maybe that person gives you a check for you know $50,000 and says, hey, go make a show about Jesus. Make it however you like. I don't care. I'm blessed with the resources and you seem to be a decent chap. I want to help you out. We kind of see that happening with the chosen and you got to figure that out, Christian. How does that work biblically? You know, and the rules may be different in a local church, but when you are sent out from the local church, an ambassador for Christ in the world and a creator in Christ's image in the world, uh, you're going to mingle with some non-Christians, some of whom like what you do, uh, but it doesn't ruin what you do just because they like it. So I'm not bothered that Angel Studios is run by uh, some people who belong to the LDS organization. So long as they're not messing with the content, uh, I'm perfectly fine with that. And we'll talk later about uh, talk later about that uh, issue with the Mormons. Uh, it's definitely something that we keep hearing about at Lorehaven. Jenneth. Well, also, one other thing I like to point out is it shouldn't be, you know, the primary reason, you know, to make a show. But um, I also think with so many people who, you know, aren't Christians who are involved in the show, many of the the actors aren't necessarily born again or, you know, the camera crew um, is hopefully as they work on the show, they are exposed to the gospel and the yes. true Jesus. Not yes. to go so far to say that anything that we do, if somebody gets saved, it means it's a good thing. God can use um, anything for his good. But in the case of The Chosen, we already know it's very biblical. It's doing a great job at staying true to the scriptures. But just as a real world example, um, just in watching some of the interviews with the cast, you can see that there has been a change from season one. Um, I think of Liz mm. Tabish, um, who plays Mary Magdalene. She says going into the show, she was very skeptical of religion. She was skeptical of God. Um, she was in a very bad place emotionally and almost washed out of the industry. Um, and so she connected with Mary because Mary had very similar um, situations in episode one of season one. But you can watch a more recent interview she did on the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN. Um, and she admits that after seeing you know, the Jesus in the chosen and God, she's realized God's always been there with her and God is real. God's love is real. Um, I'm not sure if she has a born again Christian testimony at this point, but it's very clear that she did have a complete shift in her belief in at least God's existence through the work of the show. And so I think that's also something that's worth adding on um, that just because it's not done by all exclusively Christians, the people who are non-Christians working on it are also being exposed to the gospel and the truth. And, you know, there could be wonderful things that come out of that as well. That is a great point. Ministry is messy, whether it's in the local church with the appropriate rules around membership uh, and attendance, uh, or whether it's the Christian saints out in the world uh, mingling with others, uh, shining the light of the gospel and responding with joy uh, with their art that they've learned about in the local church. Either way, uh, you're going to get people who are not always just absolutely saved beyond a question of a doubt or absolutely not saved. Uh, they need to bend the knee right now and pray John 3.16. Some folks really seem to be in between and only God knows their hearts. Uh, we can look at the fruit of their lives. We can listen to their confession and try to make our best guess. I think we should. 
But a lot of people are in that uh, that transition stage uh, from skepticism and hurt and all that, uh, moving toward hopefully embrace of the true Jesus, which might uh, involve in part uh, some of the witness of people pretending to be Jesus, whether it's a guy in a robe actually quoting Jesus and some other things on TV, or whether it's any of us who, by the way, the very word Christian more than implies that every single saint on earth is in a sense dressing up as jesus we are playing at being jesus responding uh to his grace Uh, it's not just about our works but his grace will motivate what we do we're supposed to in a sense image jesus imagine him the old phrase what would jesus do involves some speculation folks you don't always know how would jesus write this computer program like it involves some speculation and we're going to get it wrong and we're going to get it right. So I'm happy for a show that at least has a 95% success rate uh, showing what Jesus would have plausibly done uh, if faced with these circumstances on screen mixed with the gospel narratives. Uh, let's move uh, soon to our chapter two of this discussion, uh, which is about why and how Christians make biblical fiction. I'm guessing we've done a lot of the legwork here already in chapter one. First off, uh, Christians who have been burned by the next big Christian thing probably ought to look for dragons. Uh, dragons can burn you, uh, which leads to our second sponsor for this episode, a new sponsor to Fantastical Truth. This is author Carrie Green with the Dragon Slayer Chronicles series. If dragons burn you, don't just run away. Sometimes you need to run away and go heal, but sometimes you need to call a dragon slayer. A dragon attack on a dark evening strips a six-year-old boy from his family, changing his life forever. As he grows from boy to man, Han's hatred for the beasts fuels his life's purpose to recruit and train a band of dragon slayers to destroy the monsters. But the beasts do not act alone. Their evil masters, adherents of an ancient ancestral cult, have taken blood oaths that together they and their dragons will dominate all the lands. Han's epic battle against the dragon masters and their ferocious monsters will test his courage, require unimaginable sacrifices, and cause him to question the justice and wisdom of his creator. The Dragon Slayer Chronicles is a three-part Christian speculative fantasy series by pastor, podcaster, and author Carrie Green. You can learn more at dragonslayerbook.com. Get uh, the link in our show notes for episode 148 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. And let's open now chapter two of our discussion, why and how Christians make biblical fiction. We've already touched on a lot of this, but I thought I'd also bring in uh, one of the more substantive criticisms we got. Uh, actually, Josiah, I think it was a Facebook comment in response uh, to your article. Uh, a lot of these uh, critics are on uh, Facebook. I'm not sure what that says about the demographic. I think it just says that there are a lot of people with some pasts out there. They got some backstories. And their first introduction to The Chosen was maybe not in the most uh, positive way. So they're associating it with some stuff that may have really hurt them before or that really seems to be getting under their skin. Dallas Jenkins, again, back in 2019, that video uh, says, here's how we make the show. Paraphrasing here, he says, first, we consult the gospel. Second, we pray hard. Third, we run our scripts by biblical and historical consultants. But he does disclaim, he says, we are not pursuing denominational considerations. We're asking whether this story matches the gospel narrative and whether it is plausible. Direct quote, and if it does, then we believe the show can be a great tool to enhance the love of scripture for viewers. We hear every day from literally hundreds of people who say that they've never been more passionate about scripture from watching this show. As a direct quote from Jealous Jenkins, we'll we'll put that uh, video link in the show notes there so you can listen for yourself. It's kind of funny how he headed off some of these criticisms 
uh, in advance. And Jenna, that's your point there. It's not just fans uh, who are finding uh, an awakening of interest in the gospel uh, from watching The Chosen, but also some of the people working on the show. So this can happen. It doesn't justify everything. God can use cancer to bring someone to him, but it can happen and it's worth considering. Uh, however, this still leaves open some confusion about why, why do we need a biblical fiction show? Why can't you just preach the gospel or why can't we just rely on the stuff that I'm familiar with, uh, even if technically it's kind of the same idea? And this reader wrote on our Facebook page, uh, kind of countering your point, Josiah, about how, hey, Christian authors have been doing this for a while. Uh, your point, Josiah, was that C.S. Lewis did this with Aslan, who's not even a human being called Jesus in the show. It's, it's a lion in a magical land. Shouldn't that be weirder? Uh, this point is worth quoting in full. Uh, quote, there is a significant difference between Aslan and another clearly fictionalized Jesus and a fictionalization of the real Jesus. The Chosen blends truth, fantasy, and Mormon teachings into one package. In other words, it intentionally blurs the line between faithfulness and fiction in a way that is incredibly difficult for even a cautious believer to discern. Unfortunately, it's being consumed by a vast number of people who are using to learn more about Jesus with little to no discernment applied. I know people recommending it to unchurched or new believers as a way to learn about the life of Christ. At the end of the day, what Aslan says is still only what Aslan says, but words falsely attributed to Christ himself muddy his actual teachings no matter how well-intentioned they are. End quote. That was the criticism we got. I, I want to toss this to you, Josiah, but a few thoughts there. First off, it's just a lie to say that these are Mormon teachings, and it intentionally blurs the line. That's not only a lie, but it's slander, and I think we need to compassionately point that out and call the slanderer to repent. Uh, that is not their intention at all. And no, there are not Mormon teachings in the show. I would know. I know how to pick, them, pick up on them. And I watched all the show, unlike some of these critics. We might talk next in the next chapter about, well, do the non-believers and the baby believers, like do their reactions ought to control what we do? Um, why should we listen to what they say? Does their sinful use of the show corrupt our righteous enjoyment of the show? Josiah, what would you say to a comment like that, especially because it touches on your points about uh, Aslan's dialogue and actions? Yeah, well, I would certainly begin by just agreeing with what you said about the Mormon teachings. It bothers me when people make vague accusations that are hard to pin down, right? It is within the realm of possibility that there are Mormon teachings in some episode of The Chosen, but I would want to know, you know if you think they're Mormon teachings, you know, please tell me, what are these? It's hard for us to debate a vague accusation of, well, there's Mormon teaching somewhere in there if you just look closely enough. Well, that's not a falsifiable claim. I don't really know how we can have a robust discussion of that. Now, if you want to say, the Chosen said this, I believe this is a Mormon doctrine, that's a much better discussion to have. Like you, Stephen, you know, I have not seen any Mormon doctrine in there. And, you know, I tend to be pretty, you know, I'm not a pastor, but I pay attention to the theological claims made. I've done a lot of independent study into, you know, what are the differences between biblical Christianity and Mormonism? Um, and I just haven't seen it. Um, and so I think if we're going to have a good dialogue, it needs to be more specific than just a vague there are Mormon teachings somewhere in there if you if you just uh, look at the right way. Maybe if I, you play it backwards on a record <laughs> player, you can hear something Some about uh, the, the collab. Yes. Or you, you need the special chosen cipher that's written on the uh, golden Gold glasses. Tablets, if yeah. you just look through those, that's when you get them. <laughs> um, 
you know, but to the other point about Aslan, you know, one of the things I learned that as I was researching this article that you know, I try to bring up in the article itself is if you ask Lewis, is Aslan an analogy for Jesus, Lewis would say no. And we know he would say no because that's what he says in the letters. In his letters, he basically says that Aslan is Jesus in another world. Now, obviously, it is still fictional. Lewis did not believe that Jesus actually went out and is Aslan and that Narnia is really real. But it's pretty clear that Narnia is asking, what if the real Jesus, you know, what if there is this multiverse that existed and the real Jesus took the form of a lion in another world? Um, and so while I understand that as a viewer, there might be some things because of our human weaknesses where it's easy for us to say, oh, well, the lion Jesus is completely fictional. We might be more tempted to say, to what make ourselves want to think that the Jonathan Rumi is a bit more like the real Jesus. So I can see a case being made that we need to be aware of our own human frailties and weaknesses. If you find yourself leaving the chosen and thinking that you know, the words of the chosen are the inspired words of Christ, you know, there's a problem there. But that's also a problem that Dallas Jenkins, that Jonathan Rumi would also say, please don't do this with our show. We don't want you to be viewing this as the words of Christ. This is a supposal of what could Jesus have done. And in that case, you know, I'd say that is the same thing as Lewis was seeking to do in Narnia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this accusation of Mormon teaching being smuggled in, um, yeah, a lot of that is just second or third hand hearsay. Uh, like you, I've never really seen any direct evidence of that, and I've looked for it because I'm I am curious why people say that. There is the the line that kind of went viral where he says, "I'm the law of Moses," and People thought that was from the Book of Nephi and the Book of Mormon, and I think, not, wasn't it from the Book of Judge Dread or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's closer to that than than the Book of Mormon. It's not a direct quote from the Book of Mormon. That whole line is a, a debate for another time, but it wasn't from the Book of Mormon. Is the bottom line? I, I think a lot of this though comes from statements that Dallas Jenkins has made, and, and he's explained more on other podcasts, like we mentioned the Relatable podcast, where he said, "Look, I know members of." the LDS church that I would say are genuine Christians. And that's made a lot of people uncomfortable. And I, again, I think this comes back to a similar issue of in, in Luke seven, these Jewish people saying, look, here's this Roman uh, centurion that, that loves our nation, built our synagogue. You go to Cornelius in Acts 10, who did charitable works for the Jewish people. And then he was brought to faith by Peter, by hearing the gospel. He was just like ready to believe right there. And, and Dallas has said, look, there are people that say, now I understand who Jesus really is. Uh, and now I understand the gospel and grace. And this goes back to what Jenneth has said about, wouldn't we want people to be working on this to get to know who Jesus is, and including the actors even? A number of years ago, I wrote a screenplay for a, one of these short films that, that's made by the Jesus Film Ministry. And it was a very intense three-day shoot. Uh, it was like 14-hour days or something. We had a very tight schedule. It's very, very stressful. And after about day two of this, even with all the stress and, and everything, everyone was still very friendly uh, and, and still very loving towards one another. And our main actor who 
as far as we know, wasn't a believer. He just paused and he looked around and he said, does no one here cuss? <laughs> <laughs> that can be a testimony, right? Yeah. Uh, to right. some non-believers, yes. And and we thought, man, there's an opening right there to, to talk about, yeah, we, we don't, you know, we try to speak um, words of life to one another. Like James says, the, the tongue has the power of life and death. And, you know, we didn't go into a sermon or anything. And in fact, I think uh, one of my teammates kind of made a, made a joke about it, but uh, she said, oh, well, you know, I used to cuss when it was cool, you know, <laughs> uh, when I thought it was cool, like Ooh. in middle school. And so, you know, it, it just kind of, yeah, it, it, it was a, even funnier, like opening into a conversation. But, you know, those kind of moments lead to great conversations that it leads to the gospel. It, it was one of those moments of like, be ready to explain the reason for the hope that is within you. Um, so why not have, you know, for, for artistic projects, people from the world involved? Now, I, I think a lot of people might go to something like Exodus uh, 30, where you see God setting aside Bezalel and others to complete the work of the tabernacle. Uh, he wasn't calling Egyptians, you know, to come work on that. But there, we know that there were Egyptians that left Egypt and traveled with them. So maybe, <laughs> like, we don't, we don't know. Uh, it's possible. But, um, but in, in terms of what's in the text, we just see uh, the people of Israel working on that. Uh, but again, these are the same people that after they left Egypt, they were worshiping, uh, many of them were worshiping a golden statue of a cow. And so, uh, look, God uses very broken people and he redeems them. Uh, and sometimes it's a very long process. I think we have to leave room for the Lord to work in things and not be so paranoid that if we get something wrong, someone won't get saved. I mean, I think that takes a very man-centered view of evangelism, that everything depends on Mm -hmm. us doing everything completely right. That leads to legalism. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's a horrible way to do evangelism. Well, it is. It also, you mentioned correctly, Zach, I think the man-centeredness there. Uh, And you've got to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to move in his own time while also not being fatalistic about it. Like, I I believe all Christians are called to pray for non-believers and share the gospel with them using words, not if it's necessary. No, use words in the proper social situation. You know, you don't want to make someone stumble either, but it takes words. Uh, Sometimes it takes images, which is the whole idea of being a Christian is that you are showing what Jesus would act like in this situation, Uh, even uh, proper biblical justice or uh, conducting our jobs with faithfulness or helping to feed the hungry or any of those things. Um, I want to talk a, <laughs> briefly as we can for such a big topic as, uh, you know, speaking of Exodus and uh, idols and images and things, uh, we'll get to talk about this idea of representing Jesus in image form, especially because we've got a, a professional uh, image caster among us. Uh, I think some of this concern um, about uh, the Mormon organization and stuff or, or some of these concerns about fictional dialogue. I think all of it uh, comes down to a personal discomfort and a legitimate discomfort uh, with this idea of idols. I think there's this idea that idol worship will sneak up on you, uh, particularly with uh, something we're less familiar with, like imagination uh, or images or making a TV show. And and some of that is just what you don't know, therefore becomes fearful. It looks like magic. Uh, if you're an ancient Christian who got uh, you know a radio preacher, J. Vernon McGee, through the Bible radio, uh, in the first century, uh, it would be witchcraft and you would smash it and uh, ask uh, for the Holy Spirit to help cleanse the region or something. 
Uh, some of this is just unfamiliar and we want to be sensitive to that. But at the same time, it also calls, I think, for teaching so that we can get more familiar about these things. And I think it really comes down to a lack of familiarity about the imagination or a personal backstory where you've seen imagination abused. Now, let's say somebody came from a very strong uh, Christian or Christianish background, uh, which relied on a lot of images and statues. And then someone pointed to that, or trusted someone and said, that's Jesus. Or someone pointed to uh, the elements that some Christians would say used during the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or whatever and say, oh, that's Jesus right there. And maybe they meant well, but you got confused. Like, wait a minute, are we actually snacking on Jesus pieces right now? Is the Virgin Mary actually in that statue? And so this is a very old uh, issue that the legit church has had. Uh, you grow up thinking like, I don't want any of that stuff. Uh, what, what's the point of this image? Like the image is not the mediator. Jesus is the Virgin Mary is not the mediator. Jesus is. And I certainly don't need a kind of a historically Christian posing organization styling itself a church. I don't need those guys. I just need Jesus and you know, maybe just Jesus and my Bible and my pastor and my local church. And I get it. Uh, but some people maybe need a little more uh, and they need to see someone feeding the hungry, imaging Jesus, or they need to see a story or read a story. Uh, about the Chronicles of Narnia or the Chosen or whatever. And then suddenly, for some reason, at that point, the Holy Spirit moves in. He's a very patient Holy Spirit. And suddenly it clicks. They may have grown up all their lives hearing the exact same thing from their parents of Sunday school. But for some reason, it took a story coming along right at the ripe age of 23 and all the stars align. And then they realize, oh, that's who the actual authentic Jesus is. I, I just saw a picture of him in a TV show. Now I get it. Uh, Jenneth, any, any thoughts on that? I'm dyslexic and I I am still a reader and I am a writer, but it has taken, you know, lots of practice and spell check to protect me. So I'm very visual um, and I've always been uh, drawn to visual teachings of the Bible. Um, I remember watching the old BBC version of Narnia and the puppet Aslan. And, you know, back then there, we Welcome didn't have good CGI Peter. and I just thought that was the greatest <laughs> I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. I just, uh, I loved seeing Aslan on screen. It's just because I, even when I was little, I understood that Aslan, at the time, I think I believed that Aslan was simply an allegory, a very, very strong one. And then, um, as Josiah did mention earlier, no, it, Aslan is actually Jesus um, in these stories. And you can actually see it in the book itself. Aslan actually talks about um, the four of heavensies finding him in their world and getting to know him in their world. He says it at the end of Dawn Treader. Um, and then in the last battle, you actually see heaven, you know, cause you know, Narnia ends, the world ends spoilers. Um, but I'm very, um, I'm very visual. I think Christians are relatively in general. I think Christians are relatively new to the entertainment industry. Um, right. We're not, we haven't, you don't, you can't name, you know, a huge long list of, amazing Christian films that have just rocked the world until fairly recently. Like Risen was one of the first ones I was actually legitimately impressed with. Um, the Chosen, obviously. Um, and even, you know, as much as I, I kind of criticized the History Channel's Bible show, it, it did set a new bar to Christian film. But before that, I think we, we didn't really get into that industry at all. Um, we, liked our, we liked our pulpit and our church and we read the Bible and, you know, all that's good, but there are a lot more visual learners now than there were before. And I think entertainment's a great way to 
introduce them to Christianity, you know, and then eventually get them into the actual Bible. A lot of the criticism I've seen recently, especially like I said in the introduction, the meme pages that I follow on Facebook have just gone after the chosen for violating the second two commandment. Or three of those, yeah. Uh, mm. I, I'm I thought like, it was you know, a joke at first. Yeah, same. I serious. thought it was a joke, and then I read the comments, and I'm like, these people are serious. the The people who post memes with Jesus in them, like, I mean, maybe I'm thinking of several different meme pages, and the ones that are upset with the chosen don't post memes that have Jesus's face on them. But I have seen Jesus memes presented as humor. And yet they're upset that a show that has a picture of Jesus in it, you know, that's violating the second commandment, but not our memes. Mm, And like I said, maybe I'm thinking of different meme pages. Like I know Baptist memes has not made a statement about the chosen and I follow them and I find them hilarious. And maybe they're the ones I'm thinking of that use um, Jesus memes and, you know, the other ones that I'm following aren't, I don't know, but from what I remember, I see frequently Jesus memes, and then the same people I'm thinking are the ones posting it, are the ones criticizing the show. So when the criticism started coming up, I was like, okay, I do know what I believe, but I would like to have some you know, backup for this. So I did look into the actual passage that they were, you know, a lot of times these criticisms come from, Exodus 20. Um, and I decided I would just, I would really look into this. And it says, Um, I use King James, thou shalt not make unto thee any graved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And I'm like, okay, if you You stop halfway through, (laughs) yeah, if you stop halfway through, it says thou shalt not make any graven image. I'm like, okay, but what, what does the Hebrew actually translate that as like the graven image word? I did a strong search. And every single time it's ever used in the Bible is for an object that is expressly made to worship the object, not Mm. what the object represents. It's the object that they're actually worshiping. Graven image is exclusively about worshiping a man-made object. But then if you continue on, it says likeness of anything that is in heaven above. And it's like, all right, well, what does the word heaven mean? Like, how does that translate? Um, And sometimes there's one instance in the Bible where that word heaven in Isaiah 47 actually translates as astrologers. Um, Sometimes it translates literal as in like the sky. And then sometimes it translates as heaven, the dwelling place of God. It it has multiple meanings. But even if you take any meaning, that means you can't take pictures of your birds on your porch. As far as where it says in the Bible that says no images of water under the earth, you can't take pictures you know, of your fishing trip, because those are images from those different categories. So I am trying to think of, is there any time in the Bible where God or somebody through God's direction creates images that would seemingly violate these people's uh, interpretation of Exodus? And I think there's two instances I could think of. Um, One when building the temple, they used a lot of pomegranate imagery. It's yeah. in um, yeah. in the robes, and I think it's even in the actual architecture itself. The the priest robes and the architecture both have pomegranates. Um, pomegranates come from the earth, and I believe that would 
you know, violate the phrase that is in the earth beneath. Um, and then also even more of an example is the Ark of the Covenant itself has angels actually built, you know, as part of the Ark. And the Ark is not God. God indwelled inside the Ark. But if you're taking this verse to mean you can't make any likenesses of anything that's in heaven, then the Ark of the Covenant itself is a violation of that verse. So clearly that verse doesn't mean that we can't ever make any picture and use our God-given creativity to mimic God's creation because God's, you know, instructed us to do it on at least these two separate occasions. Um, so I think instead you have to be like, okay, is the image that you're making, is it actually intended to worship the image or is the image supposed to draw you to the actual Christ? And anybody who's worshiping Jonathan Rumi or, you know, if they're praying and they have Jonathan Rumi's image in their head, that might be a problem. But that's not what the show is trying to do. And I think um, that's the responsibility of the person who watches it and engages in it to be able to discern between. Um, but I don't consider a Bible show that has an actor for Jesus to be a violation of the Exodus. Yeah, I don't think so either. And we'll talk in the next chapter and whatever time we have about the fan response. Like, are, are the chosen creators responsible if someone sins using the pictures that they've made uh, illustrating a fictional version of Jesus? Uh, am I responsible as a fan of the show uh, for the baby Christian out there somewhere? Uh, might not exist, uh, might be an imagination, but, you know, if that person sins, is that my problem? Should we just put away the show? You can't be consistent enforcing that kind of rule. Uh, I'm I'm in agreement with you, Jenneth, about the the second commandment. There, uh, I think where someone may come along and and instead say, well, yeah, you know, it doesn't, it, it's okay if you're not worshiping it, but you still shouldn't make a picture of God. You still shouldn't make sure make a picture of God. But I'm going, well, we're also past the incarnation. Like this is God making a picture of God. He's he's putting flesh on Jesus. The incarnation incarnation is real. The hypostatic union is real. Jesus came in the flesh. And in fact, uh, the Apostle John himself, 1 John 4, 2, uh, gives a very stern warning about denying that Jesus came in the flesh. If you say we can't make pictures of Jesus, no Sunday school pictures, no flannel graphs, no nativity pageants at your church, you know, or, or don't show him. You know, it needs to be a brick under the swaddling clothes. You get to see Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the uh, wise men and all of that and the camels. They're all real. But Jesus is just so much more spiritual and beyond <laughs> man's understanding. Mm. We can't even show a picture of him. You have just acted like you deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, and that is Gnosticism, you could say. But it's worse than Gnosticism. It is technically portraying a heresy. And yes, there can be heresy on the other side. You can show Jesus as human as you like, you know, maybe sinning, and, and then you've gone into blasphemy. But that's why we have to be so careful with that hypostatic union, the theological term for the truth that Christians have believed for millennia, that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, 100% both ways. He's not split down the middle. He's not switching back and forth. By the way, he did not shed his corporeal form on the way up at his, at his ascension. He is God to this very day, resurrected and reigning, presumably still with the nail-scarred hands. And we get to see him someday and touch him, just like his apostles got to touch him. Uh, and until that day, the Bible itself and preaching of the Bible and speculation and stories from faithful Christians as an act of worship in response to the gospel help us to imagine what that's going to be like someday. 
Um, Josiah, I got more to say about this, but I may need to move on. But what have you heard some of this uh, Second Commandment uh, objection to Jesus, which I think is really deep down under some of the uh, accusations about Mormonism and stuff. I, I think it's just a discomfort with the idea of making pictures of Jesus for any artistic use, even if we don't have a statue of him in front of the local church. Yeah, well, I've definitely heard this objection a lot. Um, you know, the faith tradition that I'm in is the Reformed tradition, and I would say that most every time that I end up writing or posting about it, I get at least one person commenting or messaging me and saying, you know, how could you enjoy this show when you are a <laughs> uh, Reformed Christian? And you know what Reformed Christians have historically said about not all Reformed. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I think that Jenneth put it very well. Um, in interpreting the second commandment. I don't think there is a way you could interpret the second commandment that bars images of Christ, that bars every other image altogether. Now, you could take that argument. You know, interestingly enough, you know, Neil Postman in his classic Amusing Ourselves to Death argues just that and argues that the second commandment forbids making sculptures of anything at all in the yeah, real world. That's inhuman. That's inhuman. Which yeah. is my point. And I think that really the second commandment needs to be taken through the lens of you know, the second clause, because it doesn't end with, you know, you shall not make uh, carved images of anything in heaven, earth, or under the earth. It follows it up with saying, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Amen. And Amen. I think exactly. that is the controlling clause grammatically. You know, if you are, you know, if you are watching The Chosen and you are getting your Jonathan Rumi poster and you are bowing down to it, you know, every morning, you know, please stop. So cringe <laughs> as well as evil. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, if you are worshiping, you know, any image, you know, that is what's wrong. But I think there is a distinct difference between worshiping an image or praying to an image, you know, and on the other hand, you know, watching a show that depicts him in visual form, um, but yet not in a way that's mm -hmm. inspiring you to worship uh, the fake depicted Christ. Yeah, exactly. This reminds me of a viral meme from about uh, it's in the early days of Facebook because it's from episode two of Star Wars, I think. So it, it's a picture of Obi-Wan, you know, young Obi-Wan in the, the hood and everything. And he looks kind of like Jesus. And the caption says, I bet you won't share this on your Facebook wall because you're ashamed to be a Christian and ashamed to let people know you Excellent love Jesus. Troll. Excellent oh, it, troll. It was so unbelievable. Funny. I love that joke so much. It's not a it, 2CV either. Yeah. No, because it, it just makes fun of everything all at once. Zach, there's a video of a similar joke. Uh, somebody did that same photo and sneaked it on his uh, grandma's, you know, kind of <laughs> Christian shrine. And he, he meant it as a joke, but the grandma was very adamant that it not be taken because that is Jesus. And he's like, it's Ewan McGregor. And she's like, no, it's Jesus. <laughs> or is it's that the same riot. one where they had the little Burger King toy from 2001 of Elrond from the Fellowship of the Ring and, the, and they oh put it on goodness. the shrine? Now, it's okay to laugh at that person because yeah. they're a Catholic and, you know, now they're never getting anything right. But evangelicals don't get stuff right either. You know, we, we've got some odd views of pictures of Jesus. And I totally get the concern that some people are going to go all, you know, simps for Jonathan Raumi or something. And you're going to mix the celebrity <laughs> side of your brain with mm -hmm. the spiritual side of your brain. And we'll talk about that later. Like, well, what do you do with cases like that? Yeah. I, I think that theologically though, uh, Zach, you and I were talking about this some last night, um, a faithful pastor, uh, Josiah reformed or otherwise, um, you cannot 
cannot exegete the scripture and first get away with such a, a, a subhuman view of our nature. God has made human beings to make stuff using his stuff, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He has never rescinded that call. We're supposed to make art to glorify him, and that means pictures of the world that God has made. Uh, if Adam scratched a picture of a lion in the dirt uh, or a brachiosaur after seeing any of those creatures, uh, that's part of what he's supposed to do. And he can keep on doing that uh, after the fall, and it's not automatically sinful. Uh, now uh, we've got sin corrupting everything, but even in this world, uh, our God, uh, by inspiring the Bible, reveals, yes, words, not pictures, but words that paint pictures. In an era when ink and parchment was at a premium, and you don't get a whole lot of physical descriptions of Jesus, except I'll note in Revelation 19, where you get a vivid image of him, hair on fire, riding a white horse, presumably a flying one. He's shooting the sword of the spirit from his mouth. He's got tattoos. He's got a name written that only himself can know. Uh, I'm interpreting a little bit here. The point is, is that that is visual. You cannot be a faithful reader of the words of the Bible without also getting a, an accurate image portrayed by the Bible in your mind. You're being asked to cooperate and see the risen returning son of God, son of man, uh, back on earth uh, to avenge himself as well he should after waiting for so long. He first comes as a suffering servant, and then he comes as the divine avenger. Uh, second commandment doesn't block you from imagining that or look forward to that. And by the way, this is post-incarnation. However, Christian, you figure out the second commandment, uh, you've got to work the incarnation in there. Uh, God himself uh, has revealed himself, uh, his very image, the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.15. And this encourages us then to think of Jesus as human. If you're not allowed to picture him in some way, then I don't know what you're going to do uh, to believe the biblical truth that Christ is mm -hmm. both God and man. You cannot deny that he came in the flesh. And by the way, you're not just going to ruin your faith. You're going to wreck others' faith. And that's mm -hmm. the testimony of many Christians who are watching the shows and they're like waking up and going, oh, wait, Jesus really was a man. He got tired. Maybe he, maybe he even got frustrated. You know, Jesus had to go out in the woods and relieve himself. He got sweaty. He had to bandage his own wounds. You see this, even if you already knew it, and you really kind of see it for the first time. A lot of this reminds me of that last scene in Ghostbusters where the uh, voice says, you know, picture the image of your destroyer. And they're like, okay, oh, don't yes. picture anything. Keep your mind blank. And yes. then he Try not thinks to think about this. pink elephants. Yeah, Try not he, to think about Jesus's face. Yeah, And he thinks about uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, that can't be a realistic view of like, don't make any picture of Jesus, even in your mind. Don't think about what he could have looked like. And, you know, don't even make a drawing. Like, that's just not realistic. But I, I think this is even worse when it comes to acting. You know, when it when it comes to movies or or TV or drama, like could you would you extend it to that? You know, you can't even have anyone saying the words of Jesus as pretending to be him. That would be a very ridiculous outcome of of this sort of view. But by contrast, I, I want to talk about a. There was a short play when I was a freshman in college that I still remember. So it was a very very simple play at a Bible study I was at. There was. Um, a guy and a girl and the guy kept trying to get the girl's attention, wasn't saying anything. And all these other people kept, um, trying to get the girl's attention and, and get her to go places or do things. And finally at the end, she, uh, taps the guy on the shoulder. She says, she says, I'm sorry. I didn't have any time for you, Jesus. I'll talk to you some other time, I guess. And 
it was so powerful. Yeah. Like it, it was mm. just, it, it stuck with me all this time. And you know, that Jesus character didn't say a word. So that's a little safer, but even would even that silent portrayal, you know, come under the condemnation of this, of this viewpoint of this apparent two CV rule. Like, Oh, I can think of all kinds of nitpicks right now. Right. Yeah. And you know, what am I worshiping that guy who played Jesus silently? Well, no, it, it's just stuck with me of, I am like that. I'm really like the girl on that play. That's just always getting distracted by things. And, Oh, I, I should spend time with Jesus. Oh, I guess I'll do it later. You know, I related to that very human story. And that really is what the focus of the chosen is. The focus of the chosen is the chosen. <laughs> it's the disciples. It's their lives and how they interacted with Jesus. Um, I don't even think Jesus is the main character, although of course that's, of course everyone, you know, probably wants to watch it for Jesus. It's really about Peter and James and John. And, right. And it's in the title. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think, man, that's what makes it so good is because they are flawed, relatable, heroic, but sometimes cowardly. They're very normal people. And we are seeing how their lives were transformed by Christ. And and that's so much, that makes a better story, honestly, because it is hard in a way to relate to a perfect character, you know, in, in film, they call this like a Mary Sue, right? Like someone who never makes a mistake or does anything wrong. Uh, but the amazing thing is how relatable Jesus is in the chosen that again, he's not uh, so humaned up that he's sinful, but he is very relatable. And like, you want to talk to this Jesus. And I, I think one of y'all's articles mentioned this, that some people said, Oh wow! I didn't realize Jesus was so friendly, or or so patient, or or forgiving. And you know his interactions with Matthew are very interesting. You know Matthew, who exasperates everyone, and and people can't stand him, but Jesus is very loving and patient with him. And I think there is even one moment where Jesus is like, "Okay, thank you, Matthew," and just very gently, like you know that that's enough. But but again, he's not harsh. He's not angry. He's not. Um, uh, he he's not upset with him, but he, you know, he has his limit to how much of Matthew's you know babbling that he can take. But but that is what is the magic of the show is that you can relate to those other very human characters and all of their weaknesses and flaws. And Janet, this is what I loved about your article is that you said, look, that the chosen takes very flaw. It it takes yes, very diverse characters, wh- whether neurodiverse or ethnically diverse or gender diverse, whatever, like it, it takes all these different diversity kind of things, but it says, look, no one gets a pass because of their identity or their diversity. Everyone has sin. Everyone has to reconcile with that sin and be forgiven and be transformed by Christ. And I think that really is the problem of so much of the diversity movement within Hollywood is that it elevates certain people above others and says, because of your identity, you have special knowledge or special, you know, righteousness that, that gives you sort of a superiority over others. And that is totally anti-gospel is that we are all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet all are made in his image and he died for all. And so, um, that's what it does well is it, is it challenges everyone to think, okay, you and, and all of whatever makes you, you, uh, how are you going to respond to Jesus? 
And just oh. to, oh, sorry, just to jump off that last point, you know, maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but one of the things I particularly appreciate about the diversity of The Chosen is that it's very realistically diverse as a show, and yet you don't really see them on social media trumpeting of, look how diverse we are and, and give us mm-hmm. all these accolades for it. It's just quietly doing the right thing. Yeah, And you sometimes mm-hmm. you get frustrated when shows are focusing on this show is going to be a great show because of how much diversity is in there. And, you know, I want to see good diversity in shows, but sometimes it feels a bit like those Pharisees who are staying on the street corners or in the middle of the synagogues trumpeting. This is how great of a person I am. And personally, as a viewer, I'm much more interested in seeing diversity modeled the chosen way where they do a great job to be accurate and honest and realistic in their depiction of people but they're not out there asking people to give them all these accolades uh, for what they're doing. As do the true Jesus. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jenna. Sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I do love that. I mean, as a, a female fan of anything, when they, they put out um, movies that are all like, it's an all cast or all female cast ghostbusters. I'm like, I feel like I'm being used now, like as a female, like don't call me out for my gender. Call me out for, you know, things that I'm doing well that you admire, but don't call me just, you know, don't make me feel special just because of the way I was born. And then don't make a movie about it and be like, oh, look, we're all the whole cast is women. I'm like, so what? I don't I don't want to be treated differently. So I do like how The Chosen treats everybody the same, regardless of who they are. And they all need, you know, the same salvation from Christ. And I really like that. As the true Jesus might say, uh, when you make a diverse television show, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but rather let your good deeds be done in secret. Uh, and then your father who is in heaven will reward you. That's a speculative paraphrase of Jesus, uh, which is kind of part of what we've been talking about here. And it could make its uh, own episode by itself. Uh, speaking of making images or even making realms, looking at God's creation and fantastical creatures and wondering if maybe you can do the same. Guess who's back for our third sponsor of the show? Realm Makers. Again, it's the Realm Makers Annual Speculative Fiction Writers Conference. They just opened registration for the next event. It's uh, live from July 13th to 15th of 2023 back in St. Louis, Missouri at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel. Uh, That location is one that they have favorited for many a year. And now they're coming back uh, this summer, but you can also live stream if you can't go to the physical event. If you are a Christian writer or creator of fantastical fiction or sci-fi or anything like that, this is the place to go. They're expecting hundreds of writers uh, who create these stories to join this organization. It is a Christian-led organization, Realm Makers. This is the 11th annual conference, and authors can register now at realmmakers.com for the event. You can go in person or you can live stream on the dedicated Realmsphere social network. Here's a quote from the co-owner and CEO, Rebecca P. Miner. We at Realm Makers have enjoyed the privilege for over a decade of connecting Christian creators to one another and to opportunities in the publishing marketplace. We're not just about bringing expert faculty to the conference for teaching, although that's one of the pillars of what we do. We've also discovered that a writer's success is tied into relationships one way or another. The annual conference offers a supportive environment where authors can take the next step in their creative journey. I've been to all but two of the Realm Makers events so far, even the virtual one in 2020. So you can go virtual or go in person. Uh, They also have three keynote speakers, uh, Steve Lobby, uh, who's been on the show before, uh, Stephen James, a fourth Steve in the running for our Steve saga, 
and Trisha Goyer as well. You can get all that information in the news release we put up at Lorehaven. Link in the show notes for episode 148. Go to realmakers.com itself to register or see more information at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, we may have to abbreviate this next bit here. Uh, chapter three, we've already talked some about non-believer fans and what happens if uh, somebody who's not a Christian really likes the show or even really, really seems to like Jesus. And we've alluded earlier to uh, Dallas Jenkins' comments about uh, some uh, Mormons he knows who seem to be followers of the real Jesus Christ. And skipping all of that, I would say that uh, he's talking in a way that is very personal and stuff that we would not be able to understand if we don't know those people. So I guess I would just step back. I understand that some people are really bothered about that, uh, especially if there's some non-Christians who you think are trying to pass as Christians and that can get uh, really uh, controversial. But in this case, I would just ask, okay, does that reflect on the content of the show, which a lot of the people repeating this claim have not even watched the show and don't even seem to care. So that's just bad discernment. You haven't done your homework. Uh, but could a Christian legitimately hold this view even if you disagree with it? Would you throw him out of church membership over that view because he thinks someone is a Christian who you think can never be a Christian unless they do X, Y, Z? I don't think you can reject that person uh, as a faithful Christian. And if you do, then you're practicing what we used to call and maybe still call that secondary separation thing. You know, uh, like, okay, well, that person may be a Christian, but they hang out with that person over there. And so I'm not going to hang out with either of them. Um, that's the kind of stuff that is just not actually commanded uh, in the Gospels. It's not commanded in the epistles. And yet a lot of Christians think they need to practice that. Uh, I don't think that. And I think that that's just a philosophical difference that I have uh, with the folks who try to reject uh, Jenkins or anybody else because they have a different view about art or working with uh, non-Christians or people who are associated with a non-Christian group whom the Christian thinks is a Christian. I don't know. I don't know that person. Um, I would have to know that person. I also know that people, though, are really complicated, right? They can be moving from a non-Christian religion to a Christian one, and maybe they're kind of in between, and they exist in a state of flux, and you don't know. Uh, it's important, I think, mostly to judge the content of the show, like Jenkins says. Uh, he says, quote, I am not trying to please or seek the approval of any one person or group, including commenters on social media or critics. End quote. Uh, he says, people will call me a heretic or a blasphemer. But as long as I'm doing the right thing before God, I don't mind being criticized. Uh, he really reinforced the idea that he does not want to compromise. He's like, the show needs to speak for itself. Judge the show. He doesn't say, hey, we're untouchable. Touch you not the Lord's anointed. People are getting saved. Why are you being so uh, controversial? Why are you being so mean? Uh, this is the Holy Spirit and you can't quench the Holy Spirit. Uh, he doesn't say that stuff. Uh, a sus Christian <laughs> would say that stuff. Uh, or someone who's trying to infiltrate uh, from uh, from the outside would say that stuff. He says you should absolutely judge the show and make sure it doesn't violate your conscience or contradict the character of Christ or the intentions of Scripture. Uh, Josiah, I want to start with you because uh, we've seen people not judging this way. They're not judging with righteous judgment. Instead, their first introduction to the show uh, seems to be uh, from a an overzealous fan, uh, maybe one who's got a picture of Jonathan Romney on the wall, and they you know pray toward <laughs> it five times a day, breaking all the rules of all the religions. Uh, not great at all. Uh, or maybe you see some people who you know think the apostles are really hot, or you know you get a bad impression then from that first introduction. Uh, we've gotten a more positive introduction to the show, and so we don't have that stigma. 
But how can we, if given the opportunity, encourage these folks, hey, like, stop judging with false judgment. Like, it doesn't really matter what the overzealous or even simping fans will do. How should we encourage these people uh, to discern the show or any other Christian-made uh, imagination? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say about that is that if a show or anything can be judged by how people use it, you know who that means we have to judge the most? Well, it's going to be God by that standard, because how many of us have misused the good gifts that God has given us? Absolutely. Not his fault. You know, I, I think it is important to distinguish the, 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 you know, something itself from how it's used. Um, and you know, even to get a bit more specific than just the universe at large, which was a good thing that God gave us that we have misused sometimes to horrific ends, I might point out the very tangible example of the bronze serpent, um, which I believe is in Exodus, although sometimes I get the events in the various books oh, of the that, Pentateuch. Oh, that's the book of Numbers, up. actually. Yeah. Numbers, there we yeah. go. Kind of feels Exodus-like, though. It does. You know, and if you look at Numbers, you know, God makes this bronze serpent that the people can look to in order to receive healing. And God commissioned Moses to do this. It was a good thing that he made. But what do we see happening a few books later? Well, people are bowing down and worshiping the bronze serpent and treating God's gift as something that it was not meant to be, and it needs to be destroyed because of misuse. So what I would say, you know, is if, you know, God is able to make good things that are misused by people, you know, how much more do the things that we create as humans have the ability to be misused? And, you know, that's why I think, you know, Stephen, you're, you're right on point when you say we need to judge the chosen not by what other people say about it, not by the ways that other people might use it or misuse it, but what is the show itself doing? And that's what matters. If the show airs, we judge it by the faults of the show. If it does well, we praise it by what's in there. Um, and, and we don't allow us to be driven just by what other people say about it or other people use it, because by that standard, you know, none of us, not even God, yeah. can be held guiltless. Mm. And that's, that's not a place we want to go. Point. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point. And I love how Dallas said, you know, please focus on the content and not the flawed people who made it, including me. And I, I think that really gets to the heart of, I, I don't understand the expectation people have that these 200 plus, you know, probably now 300, 400 people that make each episode, do, do people expect the entire cast and crew to be evangelical Christian? Like, are there even that many people who work full time and, and make a living from this and are qualified to do this that are all available at the same time. Uh, I, I really doubt it. <laughs> I or doubt the fan base to be evangelical Christian and right. always read the show or watch the show, uh, with pure biblical sanctified motives. That's just well, not realistic. And we have seen some Christian films like that before that are made entirely by one ministry or like one church, like for example, Sherwood pictures, that's, you know, uh, offspring of the Sherwood Baptist church. That's made the fireproof and facing the giants and such. I don't even know if the entire cast and crew for those movies were, you know, fellow Baptists. I, I imagine they brought in other talent or other crew to do things like steady cam movements or, you know, sound design or, you know, craft services or whatever that uh, we're not fellow believers. And so I, I, I think it's totally unrealistic to think that any film could be 100% made by Christians. But 
look, this is what I would say to that impulse. I think that's actually a good impulse. I think more Christians should be in the film and TV business. I think Mm -hmm. we should encourage that. We should have more college programs. We should have more seminaries in, in Christian schools offering these degree plans. And then we should have better pipelines from school into the industry of making more films that tell our stories and not just, you know, biblical stories, but stories set in the modern day or fantasy worlds or sci-fi worlds that are about Christian characters or Christian themes or Christian topics. Uh, you know, the problem is there's not enough demand. And so this, there's not enough supply to meet the demand that's not there. So what's the solution? Well, we need to demand more of ourselves. We need to send more people into this industry. And yes, that even means some people are going to have to work in Hollywood and learn the trade because we, we've we kind of abandoned it in a sense. Mm-hmm. And mm. But also Hollywood has totally got its own insane way. But the solution isn't just to poo-poo films that are doing the best they can with who they have. Let, let's just build up more of this industry ourselves. Zach, that's a terrific point. And it's uh, very personal to us as well, uh, because uh, each one of us is in the creative industry seeking to glorify God through acts of worship, whether or not it looks like overt ministry or trying to win souls. Uh, each one of us is trying to create images or stories uh, that glorify Jesus in this way. and in that course of developing uh, these skills, in some ways, we're also learning from non-believers in some ways, or we'll eventually get fans who are not believers, uh, who put down the book or or the picture or whatever we've made and don't automatically get saved. Uh, Is that the point? Are we just trying to get them saved to close the deal right then? I I think that's a very man-centered view of evangelism uh, that rejects the sovereignty of God and exalts uh, the skill of man, uh, giving us power we're never meant to have. But uh, we just had that Realm Makers sponsorship. And Realm Makers has on its faculty, uh, you know, not professing to be Christians, but in their teaching faculty, there are going to be some people who not necessarily identify as Christians because they have good things to teach uh, about how you write a story or how you pitch in the general market. There's a lot of Christian creators are hoping to reach the general market. Uh, And we had uh, a couple episodes ago, ago, Keith Lango, uh, who now is running his own animation studio and they're making the Wingfeather Saga series. Also distributed by Angel Studios, by the way, uh, a lot of his animation skills he has picked up by working alongside secular creators in a non-Christian environment. Well, that is the doctrine of Christian vocation that I think a lot of well-meaning Christian fans or critics of this show and others, uh, as well as some, frankly, Josiah, reformed preacher types, like, you know, we get kind of in our ministry niche, I think, sometimes, and we forget that the purpose of this gospel, the purpose of the limits around local church membership and doctrine and faithfulness uh, is to equip Christian saints to go out and do their jobs, which are not just preaching in the world. Uh, that means that we're not always going uh, to confront people. Like if, you, if you're maybe uh, your calling is to be a street evangelist in Salt Lake City, uh, maybe you're going to talk a little more openly with some folks who identify as Mormon or LDS or whatever. Uh, but if I've got a Mormon friend or a coworker, like, I don't know if I'm going to force that conversation all the time. You know, maybe I just need to show a picture of the true Jesus uh, and then move in and start or finish or continue those conversations. Uh, that kind of evangelism with relationship is messier, but it's a lot closer to what we see with Christians who are trying to do creative stuff. Like one way or another, 
Uh, unless you got a chip on your shoulder, uh, the story or artwork you make is going to glorify Jesus if that is your goal. Whether or not you mention him in the book uh, or have a fictional Jesus character or whatever, uh, it really goes down to the point of these creative works. And it really comes down to that idea of vocation. Um, Jenneth, I did want to ask you because you're doing pictures. I, I teased earlier that Josiah is safe because he's doing words and you know Christians ought to be all about words. But Christians are also about images. You know, Jesus was the word, it says in, uh, in John chapter one. Uh, but then the apostle Paul writes to the Colossians that he's also the image. So you've said that you have, um, you know, it, it, to, for you, and I think a lot of people, words are more challenging. And so you're going to identify with images more. It's just how you're made. Um, how does that work out then as a Christian, like in some of the images that you're making? Um, does every single one have to have a little John 3.16 stamp in the corner, or can it be a Christian image, even if it's not specifically showing Jesus or some gospel thing? Yeah, don't you know that I secretly watermark all of my images with the full text of the King James? <laughs> well, that's real um, tiny in there, real tiny. Yeah, it's really that's, tiny. That's it's, a it's, it's a texture skill. layer. <laughs> um, no, well, it's got to be I, King James, too. Yes. <laughs> I think not everybody is called to what, a lot of people in my circles will call it full-time ministry. We're not called to preach. Yeah. I am certainly not called to preach, but I am called to make an influence in the entertainment industry in some capacity, whether it be through writing or through design or possibly through Hollywood. I don't know. There's just really desperate drive to get into the entertainment industry because honestly, if you sit back and you look at the two leading um, influences in American culture. It is the education industry and the entertainment industry. And those are the yep. two places that Christians have, for the most part, pulled out of. And I'm not blaming the Christian school movement because I went through Christian school and our family actually has a, a big story about the Christian school movement. Um, back in the 70s, my grandpa was sent to court for sending his kids to Christian school because it was illegal back then. Mm. So um, wow. I support Christian schools, but at the same time, once we got our Christian schools, um, I feel like we kind of abandoned the public schools. And I think we did the same thing with Hollywood. Hollywood's getting bad, so let's just pull right out of it. And, you know, it's a difficult situation, and I'm not exactly sure, like, the best way to handle something like Hollywood, but I don't think it's to completely cut it off and, you know, hope that God sends an earthquake to take out California. <laughs> you know, you don't want that. There are Christians in Hollywood. I know a couple. Um, and then um, I think also is we need to remember that we're called to be in the world, not of the world, but we are called to be in the world. Um, I think of in Genesis, the story of Joseph. He was taken to Egypt. He lived the culture of Egypt. He dressed like the Egyptians. He spoke like the Egyptians um, to well, the point where his brothers didn't yeah, even we were recognize all thinking, him. Zach, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yes. it's. It, I remember hearing that in a sermon once and just being like, oh, you're right. Like, we can't be exclusively a little Christian cult bubble over here in the corner where non-Christians don't even have a concept of what we do or believe because we're kind of so closed off. So I think we don't have to watermark um, John 3.16 in every single thing or even do exclusively Christian creativity you know, in our work. And if we don't, we're sinning. But I think we're called to be lights. And I think we're called to, you know, create things that still reflect back to God and ultimately his creativity. And that doesn't have to strictly be 
the straight gospel message. It can be, you know, just another person in the industry working to make good fiction or good entertainment um, to the point where eventually maybe we can, you know, have kind of a mission field in these more secular environments. Josiah, there's a lot of precedent for this in the Bible, even with John the Baptist, who comes to prepare the way for Jesus. And even the whole Old Testament could be described as preparing the way for Jesus uh, by cycling this narrative throughout generations of the original uh, covenant people of God, saying that if you sin, something has to die. If you sin, something has to die. It's important to be clean. It's important to be righteous. Don't be like the nations around you. Uh-oh, you were like the nations around you. In come the invaders. Uh-oh, here they, and here they come again, you know, and then back and forth. This cycle of this story constantly preparing, well, why doesn't God just move in and close the deal and send Jesus immediately? Why wasn't the Redeemer born to Adam and Eve immediately, as they may have hoped, uh, having gotten that promise? In Genesis 3, God spends a lot of time preparing people, and then John the Baptist comes, and then finally, finally, Jesus comes. Uh, it's important, I think, Josiah, for Christian artists to take their place in not doing the overt preaching of the word, uh, but sometimes preparing the way uh, or responding to the word that we've had proclaimed to us. Oh, absolutely. I am you know, 100% on board. And this is, this is my bread and butter since I, I work in the, the writing training industry as my day job. And I'm going to try not to get too much into industry speak since that's not what we're doing over here. But certainly as fans, we should be wanting to see you know, authors who are doing that and are taking the tricky steps at times of navigating uh, the mainstream world and understand how do I live here in a way that is faithful uh, to who I am as a Christian and not compromising who I am, uh, and yet also working to bring uh, more Christian themes into places that uh, wouldn't otherwise receive it. But I do think that we should be looking to try and support uh, artists who are doing that, whether that's coming in in the role of, of, of novels or movies or television shows, um, and looking for that because you know, in the New Testament, I think the principle is clear that as Christians, we are not called to the same level of separation as Israel was in the Old Testament. The Christ is very clear that he's not here to establish a new kingdom. This has apart from everyone else. Uh, he's here to send us out into the world uh, to be salt and light uh, in the places that we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot about, I mentioned Bezalel earlier from Exodus 31 and how it says that God filled him with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works. And he had very specific skills that were related to the building of the tabernacle. And in Acts 17, it says God has appointed the time and place for everyone to live. And so he knew, not only knew, but he determined the time and place for filmmakers nowadays to, to live and work. And he, he appointed the skills that we all have, whether as writers, designers, filmmakers, editors. And so I just have to think that uh, for the person who loves God and loves his word, and is creating things out of an overflow of worship, we have to trust that God is part of that process. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect or there's no flaws in it. Of course, there's going to be flaws in it. But we have to believe that 
the Holy Spirit is working in that person who is given those skills for this very specific moment in time. That's why I'm glad when Dallas Jenkins talks about this. First of all, I'm glad that he is talking about it. I've been surprised. He occasionally even stopped by my Facebook profile, as we've seen, uh, and even uh, engage with some of the uh, the praise and the criticism there, uh, as his time will allow. But even the act of uh, performing an apologetic for this series as it's going uh, struck me at first as like, wait a minute, brother, like just stand back and let the art speak for itself. But I think that uh, he's spoken very clearly about what he feels is his calling to kind of show his work as he goes along. Uh, he's being very open about the process, uh, not just because it's been crowdfunded and uh, you know lives or dies based on people's uh, overt support, not just movie tickets. Uh, but he is telling people, this is how I'm making the show. This is what we're thinking about. And these are the types of people we work with. He is showing how it's done, which I hope then that other creators will replicate uh, and follow that example. Uh, so it's like the Apostle Paul in an overt ministry sense saying, hey, be imitators of me. You know, I've been trying to imitate Jesus. Now I, th I think you ought to follow. Like, it's okay to step to the front and go, I think I've been put here for this time. Please don't let me get away with anything. But here's some stuff we've figured out. I think that maybe. I will hope that the Lord uh, will approve this excellent craftsmanship that we see and then open up more opportunities uh, for Christians, uh, maybe not to work uh, just in Hollywood, like you're mentioning, Jenneth, but to do these countercultural uh, uh, companies. You know, Angel Studios is a for-profit. It's not just a ministry. I'd be bothered if it was a ministry because then I think mm -hmm. it's some, uh, some Mormon chicanery going on, but it's just some <laughs> individuals who happen to be members of this organization uh, who seem to like to promote biblical, orthodox, Christian-made stories. And in a common grace way, I hope they'll be blessed for that. Now, I'd like them then to you know, be introduced to the real Jesus if they don't know him already. But in the meantime, you know, hey, we'll take your money. We'll take your platform. It's great. You know, it's either that or go off to that din of sin in Hollywood where there's a lot more corruption going on <laughs> affecting even non-Christians. I'm grateful to see these opportunities arise. Uh, it's going to take some controversies. It's going to take some things that Christians ought to talk about openly. So altogether, I'm glad for these controversies, uh, even with the side effect of the slanders about the, you know, Book of Mormon infecting everything and all of this. Like that's some of that stuff's not true. But questions about should we have pictures of Jesus? What do we do about the non-Christian fans going a little wacky or the Christian fans going a little wacky? That's stuff that Christians must absolutely talk about. This topic is great. Uh, we really opened this up. Uh, we'll draw it to a close here. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to say, uh, but we'll be engaging with a lot of the comments from listeners uh, for sure. I do note, though, that it's kind of an incidental epilogue here for this mini series we've done on the podcast called Forging Fantasy. We started it in uh, January. Uh, we were talking about the Fairy Queen, uh, the, uh, the top sponsor as well. Um, it's a Christian made or Christian uh, influenced story. Uh, but will you get saved at the end of it? Uh, I don't know. But maybe that's part of preparing the way for this project uh, to open your mind to these ancient ideas of chivalry and virtue and then trace that gleam of light all the way back uh, to the capital O one who created them, Jesus Christ. I've already mentioned the Keith Lango episode too. Like, there's somebody who's making fantasy for a more general audience. Uh, in a new way, based on the overtly Christian uh, work of uh, singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. Uh, and then we got Robert Treskelard in our last episode. Uh, he's going back to the days of Merlin and Arthur and some of these uh, roots of the early, uh, early medieval Christian uh, British Isles and some of these legends and remixing them. Are people going to get saved after these books? 
I don't know, maybe, but can God use those pre-evangelism efforts, expressions of worship to God in response to the gospel the creator knows? Can God use that to help get people saved in the future, draw them closer to him? Absolutely. I think it's not about whether or not people get saved or whether the fans are behaving themselves, but whether or not the Christian creator is being faithful in obedience uh, to the true Jesus, however they're portraying him. Josiah, Jenneth, really glad to have you all. Uh, real quick, uh, we've got the links, of course, to y'all's uh, articles, but uh, Josiah, where can people go to follow more of your work? Yeah, so they can just go to my website. That's josiahdegraff.com, and my last name does have two A's and one F, and uh, they can sign up for my newsletter and free short story collection if they go there. And Jenneth, uh, you as well, your work online? You can follow some of my projects on my website, jennethdick.com dot wordpress.com and my last name is spelled d-y-c-k um you can also find me on instagram jenneth lead author underscore author if you search jenneth on instagram you will find me i am the pretty much the only one but i post some of my <laughs> artwork and my book covers on instagram as well um along with any writing projects i might be working on and you can also of course see uh jenneth's uh, expert uh, image casting on the lorehaven instagram feed uh, almost all of those images nowadays god bless her are due to her skilled hand really appreciate it both of you all quick update of what we've got on the site of course we've recently had those articles by jenneth about the chosen uh, as well as uh, josiah we'll link those in the show notes we're also doing in the lorehaven guild our new book quest that's for a book called rose petals and snowflakes uh, it's basically a combo move of a Jane Austen-like fiction along with the fairy tale of Snow White and Red Rose. Tisha Messing is the uh, book quest leader for that. And of course, you can get to the guild only by getting your exclusive invitation by subscribing free at lorehaven.com. Go there, fill out your email address at the bottom. You can also get updates for every podcast episode we release on Tuesday and the new book reviews we put out every Friday and new articles and news posts almost every week as uh, the creators are available to make those. Yeah, so over here at our comm station, we had a reply to Elijah David's article, The Magician's Nephew Taught Me Christ's Compassion in the Miss of Greet. And this was from C.L. Stansbury, who replied and said, Thank you for this. My family has experienced many losses, including the death of my son last April, after a long battle with a rare neurodegenerative disease. He was 17 with the mind of a four-year-old. Mm. I feel God's love, compassion, and comfort. My hope is that in the novel I'm writing, I'll be able to express the goodness and sovereignty of God that others may see and experience. That is so great to hear. I really enjoyed uh, editing uh, Elijah's article. He's been a friend for quite some time. And uh, this time of year, it just seems like a lot of us have been going through those seasons of uh, grief and suffering. And you see then another benefit of stories, uh, not just to get you saved, uh, and not even just to help motivate you to explicit act of worship, uh, but also to just remind you about the uh, love, compassion, and comfort of God. Yes, the true Jesus is the only source of these, but Jesus acts in the actions of other people who come near to bring you a hot meal or give you a hug. That's not detracting from the true Jesus. Uh, that actually helps us to exalt the true Jesus if we're doing it right. Meanwhile, whether or not you watch The Chosen, whether or not you're okay with pictures of Jesus, I think it's important to note that uh, plot spoiler alert, in a sense, you are a picture of Jesus. So all that stuff warning about picturing Jesus wrongly don't just apply to a TV show or an image that we make, but to our behavior. So regardless of what we think about a Bible show or a fantasy story, 
Let's make sure that we're not spreading lies. Let's make sure that we are doing discernment by the book, not by our feelings. Let's make sure that we ourselves are presenting the best picture of Christ possible to one another and to a watching world as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 